Parshat Devarim, but actually we're going to be talking about Sefer Devarim. Devarim is the fifth book of the Torah. Um, what is the fifth book of the Torah? We've discussed it in previous years. Um, before we actually get to that discussion, I want to read you the first five psukim of Sefer Devarim, um, introducing the concept of what Devarim is going to be. Okay? These are the words which Moses spoke to all of Israel on the other side of the Jordan, Bamidbar in the desert, Barava in the plain, Mol Suf opposite the Red Sea, Ben Paran Ben Tofel Velavan Vachatzerot Vidizahav between Paran and Tofel and Lavan and Chatzerot and Dizahav. So it is giving you. Um, a location telling you exactly where Moshe was when he spoke the words that we're going to hear. Eleven days journey from Chorev. Achad asar yom me Chorev. Derechar Seir ad Kadesh Barnea. By the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. A lot of geographical information going on here. Okay? Vayhibar ba'im shana ba'ashte asar chodesh. Be'chad la chodesh diber Moshe b'nei Yisrael. It came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that God had commanded him regarding them. So this is now setting the stage, giving a location, a date, and what's going to happen. Moses, the leader of the Jewish nation, speaks to the Jewish nation in a manner that reflects everything God had commanded him regarding them. Continues the introduction. When did this happen? So we know the date, but what is the, um, the significant moment that perhaps triggered this? Not quite clear, but what is it um, that happened just particularly now? that triggered this event. When did this happen? Not just the date. It was after he had smitten Sichon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Cheshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who dealt in Ashtarot, in Edrei. Okay, so this, there was a significant event that took place. There had been a battle. They'd been victorious on the battlefield against these two great kings. And that is the moment after which Moshe Rabbeinu began to give this address. And once again, Be'ever ha'yarden, be'eret mo'av, ho'il Moshe be'eret ha'torah hazot, on the other side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses commenced, he explained this law, saying, so, Lemor, he basically began to speak, and now the speech begins, that's the first five pasukim, pasuk six begins with the actual speech itself, but really what we're seeing here is um, kind of, uh, what do they call it, you know, the beginning of a convention or conference, you have something called orientation, right? The beginning of Sefer Devarim is an orientation. You don't have it at the beginning of any of the other books of the Torah, not Bereshit, Shemot, Vayikra, and Bamidbar, 
But here you have this these five uh, psukim which offer you an orientation in terms of what was happening before Moshe Rabbeinu began to speak. We're going to come back to this much later, but now we're going to talk about um, the name that we give to this particular book. There is um, an interesting discussion in Masechet Gitin. Masechet Gitin is the Talmudic tractate that discusses um, the uh, laws of Jewish divorce. How many lines are there in a bill of divorce, the official contract of divorce between a husband and wife? When that divorce is finalized, it is, um, it is symbolized, or I guess expressed in the form of a contract. How many lines does one write, Hebrew um, lines does one write in this get? So there's a number, the number is 12. Why are there 12 lines? So Tosafot um, in Gittin discusses the number of lines in a get, which obviously is based on a tradition that that's how a get should look, that's how this Jewish bill of divorce should look. And he says there's two reasons. The first reason Tosafot gives is that the word get is made up of two letters, get, gimel, tet. Gimel is three, tet is nine. So you have nine um, you have 9 plus 3, which is 12, that makes up 12 lines. So within the name itself, you have an indicator as to how many lines there should be. And there's another answer that Tosafot gives, that it is a representation of the division, obviously divorce is a division between a man and wife, of the division between the books of the Torah. Because between every book of the Torah, written in the scroll, to signify the separation between the books, you have a separation of exactly four lines. That means you don't write anything in, the, in a space that would, would have contained four lines. The problem is that there's five books of the Torah, which means that you need to have at least four separations, one between Bereshit and Shemot, one between Shemot and Vayikra, the, another one between Vayikra and Bamidbar, and finally between Bamidbar and Devarim. What is four times four? Sixteen. So you have a bit of a problem, because you don't have a get of sixteen lines, you have a get of twelve lines, that's what we've been saying. So how does Tosafot answer this? He says that Devarim is Mishneh Torah. What does Mishneh Torah mean? He says Chazal, the Talmudic sages referred to the fifth book of the Torah as Mishneh Torah, a review, a repetition of the Torah. So in and of itself, it isn't particularly significant. It is only significant because it contains within it the rest of the Torah. Therefore, you don't count the four lines that separate Bamidbar and Devarim. You only count the three first separations between the four other books of the Torah. So now you've lopped off four from the 16, you're left with 12. That explains why a get has 12, okay? So the words Mishneh Torah don't, uh, um, they convey that the fifth book of the Torah is somehow only an echo of the rest of the Torah. And the rest of the Torah, I'm guessing from what, the, uh, what Tosafot is saying, is much more significant, or just more significant, 
or differently significant than the book of Devarim. I want to look at this idea of Mishneh Torah. I'm not going to try and explain Tosafot. I'll leave that for you to do when you study um, the tractate of Gittin. I'm just going to talk about this concept of Mishneh Torah of the fifth book of the Torah, the book that we are beginning this week when we start with Parshat Devarim, the book of Devarim, also known as Mishneh Torah. Chazal referred to Devarim, as we've said, as Mishneh Torah. Why did they refer to it as Mishneh Torah? Because it's a pasuk, the pasuk is in Vayelech, um, and it discusses, and actually it's in the, it's in chapter 17 of, um, it's in chapter 17 of Devarim, and in a parsha that discusses, a chapter that discusses the, um, discusses the um, establishment of a Jewish monarchy. It talks about the king. Who is the king? What he has to do? What his obligations are? What his relationship is with the people? What he shouldn't do, etc. In this pasuk in Vayelech, describing one of the things that a king has to do in order to be a proper Jewish king, it says, katav lo et mishneh ha-Torah hazot. He must write this mishneh ha-Torah. On the basis of the fact that this pasuk appears in Devarim, Chazal said that mishneh Torah refers not to the whole Torah, but refers to Devarim. We'll get back to that later. But the name Mishneh Torah um, is applied to the book of Devarim, and it seems to imply that Devarim reviews the previous four books of the Torah. There's a big problem with this. Because if Devarim is a review of the four books in the Torah, then it should review all the main stories, as well as the main mitzvot that are found in the books of Bereshit, Shemot, Vayikram, Bamidbar. But there's a problem with that. Devarim does not review everything that is written in the Torah. And the Ramban, among many others, points this out. So the Ramban is conscious of the fact that the name Mishneh Torah applied to the book of Devarim somehow is problematic. I'm not going to read you the Hebrew. I've included the full Ramban in Hebrew, but I put below that in the source sheet on page one excerpt from the Ramban, who tries to, um, I guess, uh, find a way of mitigating the issue of the name Mishneh Torah once we understand that the word Mishneh Torah means repetition or review, and knowing that we, and we know this, that Devarim does not repeat everything that is written in the Torah. Let me read the English translation that I've included below the Hebrew. Moshe explained for the generations entering the land of Israel, most of the commandments necessary for Israel. He didn't man- mention matters from Leviticus, Vayikra. Why? For he already explained those mitzvahs to them, to the Kohanim, and the Kohanim were eager and didn't require additional instructions after they were already instructed. So the Ramban's response to the fact that the entire body of Jewish law in Leviticus being excluded from Deuteronomy, from 
Devarim is due to the fact that the Kohanim didn't require listening to the whole of the thing again, or even to be reminded of it, because they were naturally um, eager and involved and engaged, and therefore the underlying reason for having, for having to repeat anything is because you need to repeat something for somebody who is less engaged. But if someone is engaged, you don't have to say anything again. Once you've told them once, they'll know it and they will keep it in mind, they will bear it in mind and they will observe it and they will keep to it, etc. The Kohanim fell in that category. So the Ramban is offering... I mean, without actually saying it, a reason for this concept of Mishneh Torah. Mishneh Torah is there for the Jews before they enter the land of Israel to kind of reaffirm and repeat the mitzvot which are relevant to them so that they should have kind of a double, um, a double mention so that it's going to uh, um, stay with them when they enter into the land of Israel. The Kohanim don't need this double mention because the fact that it was mentioned once is sufficient for them. And therefore, Mishneh Torah doesn't apply to them, it only applies to the remainder of the nation. But for the regular Jews, he repeated the mitzvot relevant to them, I'm reading the translation again, sometimes to add more clarification, sometimes to caution them through a repetition of warnings. And he also added several mitzvot, things which are not mentioned in um, in the rest of the Torah, that were not previously mentioned at all, such as Yibum, a lever at marriage. Why? Moshe was, um, had told them this earlier, but they weren't written in the earlier books addressing those who left Egypt, since maybe they only practiced those mitzvahs in the land of Israel. So the Ramban is conscious of another anomaly. The second anomaly is not things that are not mentioned in Mishneh Torah that are mentioned in the rest of the Torah, but there are things in Devarim which aren't mentioned anywhere in the rest of the Torah. So the Ramban responds to this particular problem by suggesting that they were actually said to the nation during the period preceding Devarim. However, um, at that stage, they weren't really relevant mitzvot. For whatever reason, let's, call, let's talk about the one he mentions, Yibum wasn't a relevant mitzvah for the time that they resided in the wilderness, in the desert. Only once they enter into Eretz Yisrael does this mitzvah become relevant. And therefore it's only recorded in Devarim, even though it was mentioned previously. We're now taking this to a real stretch. That means a repetition, Mishneh Torah, is not a repetition of everything that's written in the Torah, but everything that's in the Torah, whether it's mentioned or whether it isn't mentioned, is now recorded in Devarim. Because at this stage, if it becomes relevant, it has to be mentioned. And if it's not mentioned, it's because the people it was said to, like the Kohanim, don't need it to be said again. Um, continues the Ramban. Um, if only, it only mentioned them for the children who would inherit the land. So the Ramban's opinion is that, it would seem from what the Ramban is saying, that the understanding or the translation of Mishneh Torah as repetition or review of the Torah is correct, but it needs to be qualified in terms of the actual content of Sefer Devarim. Sefer Devarim doesn't mention everything that's written in the Torah previously, and it does mention some things which aren't mentioned previously, but there are reasons for both. So when something is mentioned and hasn't previously been mentioned, there's a reason for that. 
And if something isn't mentioned and was previously mentioned, there's a reason for that. So the Ramban sticks with this idea that Tosafot gives us in Masechet Gitin, but doesn't really give us a satisfactory explanation as to why Devarim is not a true repetitional summary of the Torah. He suggests that it is a selective summary and includes certain things which haven't previously been said for reasons that he gives. I'm going to drop the Ramban. We're not really going to come back to it because we're going to explore this whole idea further. I want to look at page two of your source sheet in which I've summarized some problems um, about the Ramban and generally about this idea of Mishneh Torah referring to Sefer Devarim as being this um, repetition or review concept that Devarim is really a summary of everything that is previously written in the Torah, and I've put it together here in a box on page two. While the Ramban acknowledges the problem and offers answers and solutions to explain a limited number of omissions and inclusions in Devarim, he fails to address many other omissions. For example, where is there any mention in Devarim of creation? The flood the patriarchs and matriarchs, the sons of Jacob, slavery in Egypt, the ten plagues, exodus, splitting of the Red Sea. What about all the other mitzvahs mentioned elsewhere that are missing in Devarim? Obviously, Sefer Devarim is not a review of the Torah. So what is Sefer Devarim and why do Chazal refer to it as Mishneh Torah? So the Ramban attempts to stick with this concept of Mishneh Torah being a summary, a repetition, a review of the Torah. But everything I've just mentioned somehow undermines the Ramban's central premise, which is that Devarim is a repetition. And that's really what we're going to address today. So this, by the way, everything I've said until now is really an introduction to the main body of the Shir, which is trying to understand what the book of Devarim is. How are we to understand it? How are we to appreciate it? How are we to relate to Sefer Devarim, the final book of the Torah? Look at source three. Devarim is almost entirely written in the first person, unlike the other books of the Torah. So the other books of the Torah are written in the third person. They're narrative stories written by, in English you'd call it a narrator, okay? Someone is telling the story. But the book of Devarim is written in the first person. So it's as if there is a person speaking. I this and I that. We know it's Moshe Rabbeinu. But the, the, an author, as it were, has written, sorry, so the narrator would be Devarim. Uh, I'm not even sure about that. I'm not sure how to refer to it in English. Devarim is written in the first person. A person is speaking and it's a record of his, um, you know, his articulation of whatever it is he's saying. We know that to be Moshe Rabbeinu. The rest of the Torah, traditionally we understand it, according to Chazal, was written by Moshe Rabbeinu, dictated by God, and it's a third person narrative about events that occurred or about mitzvot 
that are delivered by God to Moshe Rabbeinu. For example, we begin a mitzvah, Vayedaber Hashem el Moshe Lemor. So it's a third person uh, thing. And God spoke to Moses, etc., to tell the Jewish people about a particular mitzvah. The reason for this, um, that means the reason for Devarim being a first person singular, as it were, uh, narration of events is that it contains a collection of speeches delivered by Moshe to the nation before he died. So, to understand Devarim, if you really want to understand the book of Devarim, it's essential to understand the purpose of these speeches. You really need to know what the speeches were about and why they were said and how they relate to each other. Each speech has an introduction. We've already, we already read before, at the beginning of the year. we read the first introduction, the first five psukim of Dvarim are an introduction. They're written in the third person, right? Ve'elah Dvarim is in the third person. But then afterwards, the speech begins and Moshe Rabbeinu speaks, that's in the first person. Um, the speech that follows is in the first person. Now, how many speeches are there in Dvarim? Does anyone know how many speeches there are in Dvarim? No, there's four speeches. The first speech is the first four chapters of Devarim. So after the introduction, it begins and it ends at the end of chapter four. Okay, not so bad, right? A four chapter speech. Don't know how long it would have taken Moshe Rabbeinu to say it, but one assumes it's not going to be that long. The second speech, it begins in chapter five, after a couple of psukim in, and it ends at the end of chapter 26. 21 chapters of speech. Now that was a long speech. If you have attention deficit, you don't want to be in the audience for a 21 chapter speech. A very long speech indeed. This speech actually is the most important part of Sefer Devarim, as we're going to see. There are two more speeches in Devarim, short speeches, and they're about very defined topics. They have very defined topics which dominate what they are about. The first one of those final two is chapters 27 and 28. Moshe warned the nation what would happen to them if they observed the laws of the Torah or if they didn't. It's known as the Tochacha. Okay, so that's in Parshat Kitavo. In chapters 29 and 30, Moshe explained that even if the nation sinned, this is the final speech, the gates of repentance, Teshuvah, would always remain open. From chapter 31 until the end of Devarim, 31, 2, 3, and 4, it's four chapters, Devarim, as it were, returns to the regular narrative style of the Torah. That means it's third-person narrator style, okay? So it's as if somebody's writing about events that occurred, describing Moshe's final farewell to his people and his death. So how many speeches are there in Devarim? Four speeches. I've put here a very helpful little table on page two of the source sheet, speech one, speech two, speech three, and speech four, to tell you which chapters contain which speech. The longest and most powerful speech is the second speech. That is really the central um, and most important part of Sefer Devarim, those 21 chapters. 
It's the longest speech, which means it that must be treated as the main one, right? We, I mean, we all understand that. The longest part of any um, tract, particularly a religious tract, Hebrew scriptures is a religious tract, is obviously meant to be treated as the most important thing. In order to understand Sefer Dvarim, I would suggest, we must first fully understand the purpose of this keynote address. I think we all agree that in order to really understand what Dvarim is all about, that second speech is important. Once we understand the speech, we can look at speech number one to understand how it acted as a perfect introduction to this main speech, while the final two speeches form its conclusion. So Moshe Rabbeinu is about to die. He knows he's going to die. He knows his life is over. He knows he's not going to lead the Jewish nation into the promised land. And he knows that in these final few days that he has, he needs to convey important information to the people who he has led and has been responsible for, has advocated for, for 40 years, right? So what does he do? He gathers them all together and he gives them a series of speeches. And as part of that, he delivers information to them that's going to be crucial for them as a nation once he is no longer there. How many speeches did he give? Four. Which one is the most important one? The second one. I'm not going to read you 21 chapters. I am going to go through the psukim that describe the opening, his opening remarks, as it were, of the second speech, which we all agree is the most important part of Sefer Devarim. Let's look at source number five. It's the whole of chapter Hey and a small part of chapter Vov. That's what we're going to read together. And we're going to use that as the platform, as the springboard to understand the whole of Sefer Devarim and ultimately to understand what Chazal meant when they referred to the book of Devarim as Mishneh Torah. Vayikra Moshe El Kol Yisrael. This is an introductory verse. Vayikra Moshe El Kol El Kol Yisrael. Vayomer lehem Shema Yisrael et Achukim v'Tamishpatim Asher Anochi Dover Ba'Aznechem Hayom Ulemadetem Otam Ushmartem La'Asotam. Moshe Rabbeinu called together the entire nation and he said to them as follows. That's the introduction. Shema Yisrael, listen Israel. The statutes and the laws that I'm going to put forward into your ears, that you're going to hear them, Hayom today. Learn them, study them. And make sure to keep them, to do them. Hashem Elokeinu karat imanu brit bechorev. There was the covenant that God struck with his nation in a place called Choreb. Do you know where Choreb was? Horeb? Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's the geographic location of Mount Sinai. It's referred to in the Torah as Choreb. The main central covenant between God and the Jewish nation was established at Chorev at Mount Sinai. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu begins by telling them. Lo et avotenu karat Hashem et abrit hazot. 
It wasn't something that he did with the previous generation, with your fathers, your ancestors. Don't forget, the people Moshe Rabbeinu is speaking to were not at Mount Sinai. They're the next generation. The Mount Sinai generation has already all passed away. It wasn't with them only that God struck this covenant. Ki itanu anachnu eile po hayom kulanu chayim. Even with us, all the ones who are here, the ones who are alive, God put together this covenant with you as well. It applies as much to you as it did to them. By the way, this is a central tenet of Judaism that when God established a relationship with our ancestors, he didn't just do it with them, he did it with us as well. Now I want you to listen very, very carefully. Okay, this is where the crucial piece begins. How was that covenant established? How did that relationship begin? I'll tell you, says Moshe Rabbeinu. God spoke to you face to face. He had a conversation with you. You all became prophets in the mountain, on the mountain, from within a fire. If you were at Mount Sinai, guys, God spoke to you. He had a conversation with you. He had a direct face-to-face relationship with you. You encountered God at Mount Sinai. That is what Moshe Rabbeinu is telling the nation at the end of his period of leadership. What was my role at this stage? I stood, stood up, between you and God. At that time, to relay to you the word of God. Because you were frightened, you were awestruck by this fire, by this incredible imminence of God. And therefore, I became like an intermediary between you and God. So it began by God speaking to you directly. And at some stage, I became the intermediary. Why? Because you said something, Lemor. And now we have the Ten Commandments, okay? So, what it says is as follows. Sorry, I've, I've lost, I've lost a, the place here. Um, here we are. Anochi Hashem Elokecha, all the way to Velosachmod Eshet So, somehow, at some point, God relayed the Ten Commandments. He spoke to you face to face, but at some stage I became an intermediary. Why? All of these words, the Ten Commandments, were spoken to you face to face, as it were, from um, a fire within the mountain. And they were written on two tablets and they were given to me. So the Ten Commandments were the first um, 
direct communication that God had with the nation. Until that stage, God had never spoken to the nation. His only means of communication with the nation had been Moshe Rabbeinu. Now they had reached this elevated status that they could communicate directly with God. The implication here, we're going to get back to it later, is that the entire Jewish nation had become prophets. It seems that that was the plan, that God would communicate with everyone. There was a democratization of prophecy. No one was excluded. Everybody could have a direct communication with God. God would speak to everybody. But that changed. Vayehi, and it was. When you heard the voice of God from within the darkness, and the mountain had erupted in fire, you came close to me, you drew near to me. All the leaders came to see me. There was a, a conference of the leadership of the Jewish nation that gathered around Moses, and they sat down at a meeting and they said as follows, Yes, we know that God has displayed his incredible might, power, glory to us. And his voice, Shamanu, we have heard from within the fire, Hayom today. And we know that it's possible for God to speak to a human being and that human being should live. Okay? So that's how they introduced what they were about to say to Moshe Rabbeinu. However, we're frightened that even though we have survived the experience of today, of this direct communication with God, we're frightened that we're going to die because it's not possible for human beings to maintain and sustain that kind of level of relationship with God and survive. Why should we die? The fire will consume us. Because if we continue to listen to God's voice in a direct way, we will not survive. We're going to die. Who's ever been, by the way, has anyone ever been through these psukim? You read through them, you listen to them in shul, you don't, they, they sound strange, and you let, you know, you've heard the Aserita Dibrot, you sit down, you move on, you get to the next stage of the story. Who's ever read through these psukim? It's fascinating. What happened here was that Moshe Rabbeinu had introduced them to God, they'd experienced this direct encounter, and actually it had frightened them to the, to the level that they felt that they wanted to desist from ever communicating directly with God again because they didn't want to die. Who is there around the world, a human being, who's directly communicated with God in this awesome fashion and has survived the experience? Kerav Atah. You be the one, you Moshe Rabbeinu, you be the one who draws near to God. Listen to everything that God, our God, has to say. And then you speak to us. And you repeat to us everything that God says to you. And you tell it to us and that's fine. By the way, 
This is the first time that we encounter this concept of prophecy in the Torah. What is the concept of a prophet? Does anyone know what the concept of a prophet is? How does he foresee events? God communicates with him, right? And what does he do with that information? That's, this is the key. He has, a, he has a crowd of people who believe that he's a prophet, right? And he gets this information from God. And he goes and tells the group of people, by the way, that's the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures. If you talk about, let's say, Isaiah is, is the prophet that we're dealing with right now in the three weeks. Who is Isaiah? Isaiah communicates with God. God is telling him, if the Jewish people don't improve their behavior, the temple is going to be destroyed. He hears that information from God. He delivers the information to the general public. Is that a prophet? So we understand prophecy in that way. We're hearing now that that wasn't what prophecy was. Prophecy wasn't something which turned an individual who communicated with God into a messenger for a larger public. Prophecy was simply a person who could communicate with God. That's what I was thinking. Sometimes also, if you can connect, you get that information, I just wouldn't say that it would be... It's not necessarily... In other words, what Moshe Rabbeinu seems to be indicating here is that prophecy was God communicating with people. Not that those people then become ambassadors for God's information. They, anybody can be a prophet and anybody can get information through direct communication with God as long as you're part of this covenantal group. And then you deal with the information yourself. But these people had a different idea. They created this notion that prophecy should be individualized to a particular person and that that person becomes a conduit of information to a wider group. Why? They give a reason. Because most people are just not on the level that they can handle this direct communication, this conversation with God. So rather than endangering their own lives through communicating with God, which might create all kinds of problems for them and kill them, in fact, that's what they're nervous about. We, we live our life, we want to be God-fearing, but by communicating with God, Somehow our life is going to be in danger. We would rather, they are saying this, the leaders of the nation. Oh, by the way, the group in Jewish history, which was at the highest level of any group that has ever existed. There's never been a corporate group of individuals like the, the Jewish nation who came out of Egypt and who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were all worthy of God's revelation. And yet, this group designates Moshe as their conduit, as their ambassador, as their messenger. You speak to God. You be the one who communicates with God, and then we will hear it from you. Now, there's two things that that tells you, two very important things. The first is that they communicated with God, and they were very special people, um, and that they had this ability to communicate, but that they decided they didn't want to do that. The second crucial piece of information that this tells us is that they made the decision that any of God's communication could come through this one individual and they would accept what that individual said. It's going to, it has implications. For example, we discussed a few weeks ago the story of Korach, the re rebel. He says, 
you know, Madua Titnasu, why should you raise yourself above everybody else? What are you talking about? He didn't raise himself above everybody else. He was asked to be the one who would raise himself above everyone else. Why? Because they didn't want to endanger their lives. So Korach was trying to undermine a principle that had been established for the uh, good health of the nation at large. They didn't want to be in a position like Moshe Rabbeinu, who's at this very elevated level. They preferred to be at the ordinary, mundane level of human being and to get God's information through the individual that had been designated the prophet. So prophecy goes through a metamorphosis at this stage. Until now, prophecy has never been about delivering a message to a larger group. There were individuals who were prophets. Abraham spoke to God. He was never told by God, go and tell this information to other people. Can that also be misinterpreted by other people? Like the person that is kind of communicating and having the vision? But that's, that is, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing that that is the um, complaint of Korach. How do we know that what you're saying is actually what God is saying? So there has to be an element of trust. But also, the, there is this um, idea that certain, and this, I don't want to explore it too deeply because I don't want to get distracted from the main idea of the shir. There is this idea that there are people who are more dedicated to their spiritual growth and to their spiritual well-being, and for that reason have the ability, as it were, to communicate with God in such a way that they can convey the information to others. And we trust them. It comes back to the first thing, to the trust. But there is this idea. So we know, forget any um, idea of prophecy being the delivery of a message. We know that Abraham was special. Why was Abraham special? Because he discovered God when everybody around him denied God's existence. Why is Isaac special? Isaac is special because he's Abraham's son. He, he was willing to give up his life for God. He was willing to s sacrifice himself for God. Why is Jacob special? Even in the house of Lavan, his father-in-law, where circumstances militated against him being a great and spiritual and righteous person, he emerged the same Yaakov as he was when he went in all those years before, 20 years earlier, right? It says, Im Lavan Garti, mitzvot shamarti. Jacob's greatness was that he was the same Jacob when he left Lavan as he was when he became part of Lavan's household. Why is Moshe Rabbeinu great? Moshe Rabbeinu is great because he's humble despite his greatness. Because he is willing to take on God, as it were, if it's for the defense of the, of the nation that he has been chosen to lead. He's a very great man who con constantly works on his greatness. The assumption here is, by the leaders of the nation, is that they will never manage to sustain that level of greatness to communicate directly with God. Therefore, it's a better strategy to have Moshe do that and be their link with God's desires and God's will for them, then for them to do it and to crash and burn. Okay, we're going to see that maybe, and if we get to it, that maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Okay, they had an unbelievable opportunity. They could have been at the same level of, as Moshe Rabbeinu, but they, and he's telling them this now, it's amazing. 
He's saying to them, you are the ones who chose me to be the elevated prophet who's going to communicate with God and deliver that communication to you. Why? You're frightened for your lives. Let's see what the consequences are. You like where this is going? Remarkable, isn't it? So let's read the Psukim. The Psukim is where it's at. This is a part of the Torah that nobody ever looks at in any detail. So it says, That's what we just read. Now we're in Pasuk Chafhei. God heard exactly what you said when you spoke to me. Your conversation with me was something that God was immediately conscious of. And God said to me, I have heard the voice of the, the, that which the nation has spoken to you. And everything they've said is good for me. No problem. Let's go ahead with that plan. The point is, the most important point is, are they on mission? Are they going to continue? Whether they communicate with me or whether you communicate with me, are they on mission to observe and uphold the covenant and the laws which I give them? If the answer is yes, I don't care if I say it to them or say it to you to tell it to them. Either way works for me, said God. Lech emor lahem, shuvu lachem Go and tell them, guys, I've heard what you've said. You go return to your tents. It's good. But you, Moshe Rabbeinu, stand over here, Imadi, with me. And I will say over to you, I will tell you all the mitzvot, all the statutes, all the laws, that you need to teach them. Which they need to do in the land. That I am giving them to inherit. What was plan A? You've heard me use this kind of language before. In a different context. What was plan A? Plan A was God was going to give the whole Torah to the Jewish nation. How many mitzvot are there in the Torah? 613. How were the Jewish nation going to hear those 613 mitzvot? They were going to hear them from God. They were prophets. They had that direct line of communication. How many mitzvot did they hear from God? Ten. How many mitzvot are there still left in the Torah that they need to hear? How many mitzvot? 603, right? They needed to hear another 603 mitzvot. Who are they going to hear it from? Moshe. Moshe is going to tell them another 603 mitzvot. What is their job now? Their job is to conduct their lives, go about their day-to-day lives. And for Moshe Rabbeinu now to hear the whole Torah from Hashem, the other 603 mitzvot, and to act as the um, intermediary to give over those 603 mitzvot to the Jewish nation. That was plan B. Plan B was that he would, within the next few days or weeks, deliver the remainder of the Torah for the Jewish nation. Why? What did God say? So that they can enter the land. The idea being that you can't come into the promised land until you know the whole Torah. 
You don't want to hear it directly, no problem. Then I have to tell it to Moshe Rabbeinu and he's going to teach it to you. Once you've heard it from Moshe Rabbeinu, you can now go ahead and inherit the land. That was plan B. Did plan B work out? Well, not really, as we're going to see. Okay, so listen carefully. Go and tell them that they, should, they need to observe and do everything that God has commanded to them. They shouldn't divert neither right nor left. In every direction that God, their God, will command them. They need to go in order for them to live. It should be good for them. And they should lengthen their days, their lives in the land that they will inherit. So this is a description of plan B. Plan A was everybody's going to hear it. Plan B was Moshe is going to hear it and deliver it to them. What actually happened? What happened? Moses went up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He came down. What did he discover? They'd made the Egel Hazahav. So plan B actually went haywire, went wrong very, very quickly. We're going to talk about that. But let me now, that's the end of chapter 5. Now is chapter 6. Again, I just want to remind you that this is what Moshe Rabbeinu, in his final days before death, is telling the nation about the origins of the Jewish nation, national covenant with God and how it came about and what had brought them 40 years later to where they were now. Okay? And remember what I said, this second speech is the most important part of Devarim. It's the central thematic aspect of the fifth book of the Torah. Perik Vav. V'zot ha-mitzvah. He continues by saying, right, I've just told you that that's what God wanted. Now, what did God tell me to tell you that were the statutes and the mitzvahs and the laws that, they all, that I need to teach you, that you need to do in the land that you are about to inherit, okay, you're going to go there and inherit, in order for you to fear or have awe of God, your God, to observe all his statutes and his commandments that I am commanding you, you, your son, your grandson, all the days of your lives, that you should have lengthened days, um, uh, lengthened lives, etc. What is it? So where are we up to? How many commandments have they had until now? Ten. What are we about to hear? The eleventh commandment. Okay? This was a commandment that would have been given directly from God to the Jewish nation, but he didn't give it to them. He gave it to Moshe to deliver to them. What was it? If you listen to everything that I'm about to tell you, if you, if you conduct yourselves properly and you follow the plan that you have suggested and God accepted, everything's going to be great. You will live in the land that's flowing with milk and honey. What is the mitzvah? Guys, what's the mitzvah? Do you know what it is? 
You're very familiar with it. You say it twice a day, three times a day if you say it before you go to sleep. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. That is the 11th commandment. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your possessions. You recognize this? I think you do. And may these words um, that I'm saying to you today, that I'm commanding you today, they should be upon your heart. And you should teach them to your children. And you should speak about them. You know when you should speak about them? All the time. When you're in your house. When you're on a journey. When you go to sleep. And when you get up in the morning. And you should tie them as a sign around your hand. They should be as a totafot fillin between your eyes. You should make sure to have them in a mezuzah on the doorpost of your home. Right? What is the 11th commandment? Do you know what it is? It is you need to have a relationship with God. How do you have a relationship with God? You study God's word. You make sure to teach it to your children as a legacy that's going to last for generations. You make sure that you bring these things to you wherever you are, whether you are traveling, whether you're at home, whether you are um, going to bed, whether you're getting up in the morning, at any stage of your day, of your life, in every aspect of your existence, make sure that the word of God is central. In other words... If you want to remain close to God, God is telling you, it's not just the Ten Commandments. You need this Eleventh Commandment. How do we know that this is so important? Because it's embedded right here in the Torah. You need to say it every day. Right? When you get up in the morning, when you go to sleep at night, say the Shema, remind yourself of your obligations, remind yourself of your duties, remind yourself of this relationship that you have with God. It's got to be constant. You can't let go of it for one second. Who delivered this message? Moshe Rabbeinu delivered this message. When did he deliver it? Here in Devarim. We never saw this before. Here in Devarim, we finally get this message. Does that mean it wasn't said before? No, the Ramban told us it was said before. But here, Moshe Rabbeinu is spelling it out to them. You made the decision to abdicate your prophecy in favor of mine, and I was the one who delivered this message to you. Right? I'm going to stop here because I don't want to continue with the speech. It's a very important speech. You're going to look at it in your Chumash. Um, we're now in Perik Vav, in the sixth chapter. It goes all the way through until chapter 26, a very long speech. I want to address this as the central theme of Devarim. Okay. Moshe's opening statement. We're now on number six in your source sheet on page three. Moshe's opening statement, listen Israel to the statutes and laws that I'm teaching you today, study them and observe them, implies that this speech will convey the statutes and laws that the nation is expected to observe when they enter the land. Moshe is about to die. This is his last opportunity to instruct the nation regarding their obligations after his death when they enter the land. This is his moment. 
But instead of diving into the material specified by his introductory sentence, Moshe launches into the story of how and when these mitzvot were first given. He doesn't talk about the things that they need to do when they come into the land, right? Kitavoy la aretz, that you're going to bring truma and you're going to bring... Nothing like that. What does he talk about? God made a covenant with us at Chorev. He was at Mount Sinai with us. But rather than being a digression, this is absolutely critical if the remainder of his speech is going to resonate. Why? Moshe needs to remind them that their obligations evolved from a covenant the nation had entered into at Mount Sinai. For this exact reason, Moshe launches into the story of Mount Sinai and the revelation there. He reminds them that the first Ten Commandments were heard directly from God. And he then reviews those commandments, the very core of the covenant between God and the nation. Aseret Hadibrot in Vaitchanan are at the center of this idea that God has a direct relationship with his nation. But then Moshe continues to recall the overwhelming awe and fear the nation suddenly experienced at Sinai, resulting in them opting to hear the remaining mitzvot from an intermediary. Who's the intermediary? Moshe. Rather than hearing it directly from God. And it is these mitzvot, namely the remaining mitzvot received via Moshe after the Ten Commandments that Moshe reviewed and described in this main speech of Devarim. The nation apparently suddenly became frightened and implored Moshe to act as their intermediary from now on. And this is the Pasuk. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, you came up to me and said, let us not die for this fearsome fire will consume us. You go closer and hear all that God says and then tell us everything that God commands and we will willingly do it. We're now on page four. In other words, had the nation not become frightened, they would have continued to hear the mitzvot directly from God. God grants their request, as we saw, for Moshe to act as their intermediary and informs Moshe of the new plan. This is plan B. Go say to them, return to your tents. But you remain here with me and I will give you the commandments, the statutes, the laws for them to observe in the land that I am giving into their possession. Now this this, this, this that we've just heard is the key to understanding what Devarim is all about, the fifth book of the Torah. Everything Moshe says in this oration is the mitzvot that the nation should have and would have heard directly from God at Sinai had they not requested that Moshe hear it in their place. Don't believe me? Just read the next pasuk, which introduces the mitzvot to be addressed by Moshe in his presentation. What was the next pasuk? We heard it already. Right? That's what God said to him would happen. What is the next pasuk in the first chapter or in the first pasuk of the first chap of the next chapter, chapter six? It's the same words. The plan that God had for the nation introduces what Moshe says in chapter 6. What he says at the end of chapter 5 becomes the introduction to chapter 6. Remarkable, isn't it? Moshe's speech was simply doing his duty 
as commanded by God, teaching them those mitzvot that he'd heard at Mount Sinai that the nation had not heard directly from God. Now chapter 6 really makes sense. The mitzvot in chapter 6 are those mitzvot that God gave via Moshe as a continuation of the Sinai revelation. Kriyat Shema, loving God, studying Torah, teaching the next generation, tefillin, mezuzah. And these mitzvot continue all the way through to the end of chapter 26 with Moshe's explanations and accompanying remarks. But it's important to clarify one thing, okay? It doesn't mean that only now in the 40th year the nation heard these mitzvot for the first time. Moshe had conveyed these mitzvot when he came down from Mount Sinai, but they're only now recorded in the Torah. We're going to get back to that. Why Moshe Rabbeinu didn't record these mitzvot earlier. Let's talk about the true meaning of Mishneh Torah. Okay, now that we've heard what Dvarim is about, now let's understand what the words Mishneh Torah mean. And we're going to see that Tosafot and Ramban, struggling to explain the meaning of Mishneh Torah and the way we've understood it, didn't need to struggle. So far, we've seen that Sefer Dvarim is not a review of the Torah as implied by the words Mishneh Torah. Rather, at its core, it contains a collection of mitzvot that were given earlier, but not recorded until now. So why does Chazal refer to it? Why do Chazal refer to it as Mishneh Torah? The answer is that translating Mishneh as review or repetition is not quite correct. The root of the word Mishneh is Shinan, Shin Nun Nun, which we do translate into English as repeat. But Dvarim is not a repeat, a repetition of the rest of the Torah. Rather, if anything, it contains much original material that's previously been unseen. It's not recorded elsewhere. But the misunderstanding is ours. It is not a repetition of something that was previously said. It is a body of material that requires repetition and review. Mishneh Torah. This Sefer Devarim is something that needs to be repeated. Devarim contains a list of commandments that need to be repeated and repeated and repeated every day. And this is precisely what Moshe told the nation in the very first mitzvah of the main speech. What did he say to them? These words I'm about to tell you should be on your heart. Veshinantam. You see that word? What is Veshinantam? Mishneh. You should repeat them. You must repeat them over and over and over again. Levanecha to your children. Vedibartabam. Speak about them. Veshivtachabavitecha. When you're at home. Velechtachavaderech. When you're on the journey. Veshachbacha. When you go to bed. Velechtacha. Vekumecha. And when you get up. The whole purpose of Devarim is repetition, not a repetition of something that's previously been said, but in and of itself it contains information that requires repetition. In other words, this set of mitzvot that is recorded in the central presentation of Sefer Devarim are special in a particular way. They must be constantly repeated and taught. And that is what the name Mishneh Torah implies. Because as it turns out, we fulfill this mitzvah each and every day when we recite Kriyat Shema. We are being Mekayem, the mitzvah of Mishneh Torah, when we say Kriyat Shema. 
I'm going to give you a proof for this interpretation. It's found in the only place in Devarim that contains the actual phrase Mishneh Torah. We said the Pasuk before, remember? It's about the king. When he sits on his royal throne, he should write this Mishneh Torah. And it should be with him. And he should read it every day of his life. The king needs to Read Mishneh Torah every single day. He needs to repeat what he has got, this, this document. The phrase Mishneh Torah in this context does not refer to a repeat of anything that came earlier, but rather to a set of laws that needs to be repeated. Similarly, the word Mishnah, we know the word Mishnah, where does the word Mishnah come, come from? Mishnayot, right? We have Mishnah. It's the, it's the basis. It's the core of the Talmud. What does the word Mishnah mean? It's got the same meaning. Mishnayot requires shinun. You need to learn them again, 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 again. You need to repeat them so that they're going to be remembered. Mishnah means that this is information that requires constant review. Now, when I was a kid, you used to learn Mishnayot by heart. Why? Because you repeated them enough times that you remembered them without having to look at the actual text. In fact, it's called Torah Baal Peh. You need to know it by heart. How do you know anything by heart? How do you learn something by heart? If you're an actor, you need to learn your lines. You read them in the script until you know them so well that you remember them by heart without having to look at the script. That is Mishneh Torah. Now we come to the question which I've promised you I would answer. Why were these mitzvot not recorded earlier? Number eight in your source sheet. The Ramban has already indicated that these mitzvot were particularly relevant in these final moments of Moshe's leadership, right? Because they represented the most important mitzvot the nation needed to keep at the forefront of their thoughts and actions as they embarked on the conquest of the Promised Land. Now you know that the Torah is not chronological. Initially, the Sinai revelation was to have been immediately followed by what? The conquest of the land of Canaan. What were they going to do immediately after the Sinai revelation? They were going to hear the rest of the Torah. I said it before. And then they were going to go into Eretz Israel. What happened? First there was a golden calf. Then they needed to build the Mishkan. Then there was the Meraglim, the spies. Right? That episode which resulted in the consequence of 40 years in the wilderness. That was the punishment. They would all die in the Midbar and only the next generation would inherit the land. And finally there was the challenge to Moshe's leadership. Korach challenged his leadership. I've mentioned that as well. Had it been God communicating, listen to this, you know, careful what you wish for. Had it been God communicating the mitzvot at Sinai, the nation would never have returned to their tents. What did God say to Moshe? Tell them to go back to their tents and you be the conduit of information. And Moshe, had they not gone back to their tents, would not have had to go up Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. What happened as a result of him going up Mount Sinai and not returning exactly when they thought he should return? What did they do? They made the golden calf. One thing leads to another, which resulted in these laws, even if they were taught by Moshe, receding into the background, because they don't need to know about laws that are going to take them into the promised land if there's so many things that have got in the way of them going into the promised land. Uh, other matters, other incidents, other aspects of their life took precedence suddenly. Only now, in these final 
days, weeks of Moshe's life, were they relevant? And not just relevant, but central to the upcoming course of national events. So relevant that they warranted repetition and an explanation of their background. So now we understand what Mishneh Torah means. Now we understand why the mitzvot that were not mentioned earlier are mentioned in Devarim. Now we understand why they need to be repeated. You need to remind yourself of these things when you're no longer in the atmosphere of the wilderness and in close proximity to God, surrounded by clouds of glory, led by um, the Amud Ha'esh, fed by manna from heaven, and uh, you have water from the Be'er Miriam, you have Moshe Rabbeinu as your leader. Now that you're, you're exiting that cocoon of spirituality and entering into the land, this Mishneh Torah should be your guiding book. It should be the book that you have with you every day. The Veshinantam Levanecha that you teach to your children. This contains all the essential information of a Jew entering into the promised land who wants to re remain faithful to his God and to his, uh, and to his religion. And now we're going to look at Shadal in the last few minutes and we're going to understand the introduction. Right? I sp it says the Shadal, it says Shmuel David Lutzato, he explains that these words, these particular words, I told you time after time, many, many times, as we traversed the wilderness. When did I tell you? I told you Bamidbar, Ba'arava, Mulsuf, Ben Paran, Ben Tofel, Velavan, Vachatzer, Vidizahab. All of these places were places where I repeated this information to you. Kol Ele Shemot Mekomot Shenit Akvusham Israel. These are all places where the Jewish nation remained for some time. Uvachol Echad Min Hamekomot Ha'ele Diber Moshe El Kol Israel Et Kol Hadvarim Ha'ele. And in every one of those places. Moshe Rabbeinu conveyed this particular information that we're about to hear to the Jewish nation. This is, you know, I don't know if my grandmother had this particular principle as a matter of course, but she certainly demonstrated it. What was it? If it's worth saying once, it's worth repeating. Right? Have you ever come across people like that? Who feel that they need to say something, they say it once, yeah, I've heard it already, they say it again, they say it. Moshe Rabbeinu felt that the information contained here in these first few psukim of Dvarim, in his first speech, needed to repeat, be repeated time after time, and he repeated it. Now he's reminding them of the fact that's even worse. You remember how many times I told you this? I've told it to you. What were these words that he said to them? It was exactly this. Guys, you were 11 days away from Xanadu. You were 11 days away from your final destination. Do you know how long it takes to get from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, which means you would have been on the cusp of inheriting and Taking over the Holy Land, 11 days. For someone who goes via Mount Seir, it takes 11 days. Do you know how long it would have taken you to take over the land from Mount Sinai? Had you done the proper thing? 11 days, he's now telling them. 
ואתם בחטאתכם גרמתם לכם שתתעכבו במדבר בן שנה. But as a result of the things that you did, the sins that you committed, you delayed your entry into the Holy Land. It could have been 11 days later, it's 40 years later. זאת הייתה התוכחה שהיה משה מרחיחם דרך רמז בכל המקומות שהיו מתעכבים שם. And this is something Moshe Rabbeinu reminded them of time after time um, as they went from one place to another in the wilderness. רק לא היה מבאר להם הדבר, באר היטב פן יקוצו בתוכחותו ויוסיפו לחטו. You know what? You don't always rub people's nose in it. Sometimes you just hint it to them and you let them draw their own conclusions because if you remind them how terrible they are or have been, they're just going to perpetuate in their sinful behavior. So now he says it as it were, but at that time he only said, and that's what he's telling them, I did tell you this time after time, but I didn't rub your nose in it. I didn't push it on you. Now after 40 years in the 12th month, now that it's all over, the terrible days are over, and now the punishment is done, you're about to enter the land, you're at that point that you would have been 40 years ago, 11 days later. And now he explains to them what he had told them over and over again over many years. Now he explains to them. Now he tells them everything that God had told him to say. He'd been told by God, remind them how terrible they are. But he didn't, he hinted it to them. Now he explains it in full. Then he said it to them only in a hint. But now he explains it to them in full. Why did he tell them now? Because now they were after the victories. Over the two kings, Sichon and Og, Biot Israel, Be'ever Yarden, Be'eret Moab, they're now in the land of Moab. They're out of the wilderness. They're in the plains of Moab, and they are um, almost about to take over the land. Now they know that God has forgiven them. Their terrible days are over. The bad stuff that has happened to them is no longer central. You know, they're no longer thinking to themselves, how long is this going to go on for? Now they know it's over. God is with them. They managed to be victorious over two mighty kings. And they know that their days of the wilderness are over. They know now that they're going to immediately go, uh, um, they're going to be victorious in terms of taking over the land in their battles with the nations that live there. They knew it. So when you're in a state of confidence, you can be reminded of something that you've done which wasn't so great. When you're a little depressed, you don't want to be reminded of the things that you've done wrong. So Moshe Rabbeinu only 
hindered it to them previously. Now he could say it properly. Now is a good moment for Moshe Rabbeinu to remind them of their original circumstances. Now is the moment for him to tell them what has originally happened and what went wrong. Why plan B didn't work and it went to plan C. Why it was that they didn't inherit the land 11 days later. By choosing him as their prophet, by sending him up the mountain, things began to unravel for them. So that's why they're here 40 years later. Now it's the correct moment for him to tell them this piece of information. God spoke to us at Chorev. At that moment, he said to them, you shouldn't be here at the mountain anymore. You need to go into the Holy Land. Go and inherit the land. It wasn't because he hated you. No. At that moment, he was ready for you to inherit the land. The plan was always for them to immediately go from Mount Sinai and to t- make headway, uh, a beeline for the promised land. In 11 days, who was it who Change that plan. At that point, you said, send out the spies, etc. And this is what, this is why Moshe Rabbeinu gives the first speech. He wants to contextualize what he's going to tell them with regard to the commandments that he's going to that are going to be contained in this um, massive speech that he gives, the second speech. The first speech is an introduction to the second speech. The first speech gives a platform of understanding of what went wrong before he goes into the details of the spiritual mistakes that were made, that required for all these mitzvot to be given again. The Mishneh Torah is only the result of the original, as it were, sin of the Bnei Yisrael at the foot of Mount Sinai. There's more here to Shadal, but we've gone on long enough. If you want to look at it in the source sheet on page 6, you can continue through with it until the end. We'll leave it here.